0: Hello and everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk About Brand. I, am your host, Christine Brittman. I'm dropping new podcast episodes every single Monday with the Adweek Podcast Network. You can listen to Let's Talk About Brand on your podcast player of choice. Just be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single one of those Monday episodes where we are here talking about brand. Or perhaps you're joining us for our video podcast. The video version of every single podcast episode drops on YouTube on Fridays. So I encourage you to also head over to YouTube to Christine Gritman Inc. and hit subscribe so you don't miss any of our video podcasts either. And in between the Monday podcast drop and the Friday video podcast, we want to hear from you on the week's topic. That's what Chat About Brand is for. So join me over on Twitter. My Twitter handle is cgritman. And every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time, I am leading the chat about brand Twitter chat, which is always on that week's topic. As for this week's topic, we are talking about, yes, branding. but We're talking about something especially near and dear to my heart, which is how small brands can still build a real strong, amazing brand just like the big guys, though not just like the big guys, because I do believe that small can be a superpower. But we are going to be discussing this today with Eric Huberman of Hawk. And that is an agency that brings the Fortune 500 company style branding to companies of all shapes and sizes. So we're going to specifically focus today on how small businesses can brand like the big guys in terms of, you know, the opportunities, tools the skills the strategies that they may not otherwise be you know privy to or think
1: i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com people today.
0: All right. Without any further ado, let's bring Eric on. Hello. Like making our guests feel very welcome here. (laughs) Let's talk about brand. All right. So first and foremost, I'd like you to give us just a bit of an overview as to what exactly you do when it comes to brand building. How do you help these companies build their brands on just kind of the most basic level? And then we will drill down further into the conversation.
2: Yeah. So the term brand, we look at marketing. Actually, we have a best selling book on this called the hawk method. And uh, we look at marketing in three different pillars, awareness, nurturing and trust. So awareness is how do you introduce your product or service to a new potential customer? How do you get your name out there? Things like advertising, PR, word of mouth. Uh, what are the ways that we're building out sort of top of the funnel new audiences from there? Uh, One of the most important parts of marketing that a lot of people miss is nurturing. What do we do to then take that person that now knows you exist, understands the value proposition, and get them to actually purchase and become a customer and then stay a customer and continue to buy? These are things like email marketing, SMS, chatbots, content, even merchandising has a, uh, a share of marketing and thinking about how you're building out your product offering so that people can buy more things and you can increase that lifetime value. And then the last piece of that trust, synonymous with brand is how do we build trust for a customer? Because 75% of people won't buy from a company they don't inherently trust. And early on, when you haven't had an established brand, that trust usually comes from third-party validation, influencers, endorsement deals, again, PR, uh, again, word of mouth, if ways that people learn about companies that they trust the pers- the source. Uh, from there, as you build a brand that people more recognize, uh, developing that brand, figuring out how to position that brand so that people can... Uh, Trust it inherently without looking for that third-party validation. Create a, a lot of longevity and sustainability in the company, and so we work on a lot of that as well.
0: Now, one really, I'm very interested in the trust part of this, and one thing you may have different observations here. I just want to share my observation on kind of the way trust and brands have kind of shifted over the years. I feel like it used to be back in the old old days before you or I were even, you know, a thought. <laughs> I feel like people did business with people they knew, you know, and so there was that trust there and you know big brands weren't necessarily as trustworthy. Then we entered a very long era of big brands kind of being the ones people trusted because you know a Coca-Cola is going to be the same everywhere. You know, you know what you're getting when it comes to that big brand. And so small businesses suffered a little bit for a while. And now I feel like the pendulum has has swung back a bit. I feel like the bigger the company the more, the higher the risk of it becoming kind of faceless, nameless, a little less trusted. But I don't know, you've worked with companies um, of all sizes. What are your impressions on the relationship of company size and trust? Do you feel like small is a superpower when it comes to trust? Or do you feel like the small brands kind of start at a, big of a, a bit of a disadvantage because there's maybe less market recognition out there?
2: Yeah, it's by far bigger companies have more trust. That's a lot of times what create makes a company bigger. And I don't mean, I guess trust can be used in different ways. Like, do I trust Facebook has my best interest at heart? No. Do I trust that Facebook is delivering on the things it says it's going to? Meaning like it's a social network. I can connect it with my friends. Their advertising works. Like, do I trust that? Yes. And it's a lot harder once you build that trust to break it. That's, you know, that the fallacy that trust is broken really fast with companies is actually not true. Um, good example of that is Honest Company. You know, they talked about all these bad ingredients and in all these products, and you know, all the reasons why you shouldn't be buying other baby products. And then there was this whole expose years ago about how they were including all those chemicals and whatever in their products. They quickly fixed it and went back to normal. Like it was a small blip, but like that shows that like if you talk about what your mission is and what you're trying to be and what you're trying to serve, how you're trying to serve people, uh, that goes a long way. And sort of being repetitive in your mission, repetitive in your delivery of what you're looking to achieve, people, if they hear things over and over again, begin to trust it inherently. And so I actually, yeah, again, see bigger. the bigger the brand, the more established, the more their trust is stickier and the more people trust them.
0: That's interesting. I could see that. That makes sense. And for a company like that, like the example you just used with Honest Company, they probably also have the PR machine heft. <laughs> yeah. Sort of scuttle that possible cancellation away to a degree that a smaller company would be crushed by, honestly. Uh- so it sounds like what I heard you say is that part of why that trust is there with bigger companies is the the social proof. The fact that they are, you know, the ones who are going to deliver that, you know, to you. So um, how, in your estimation, can smaller businesses gain that trust for themselves if they don't have the size of marketing budget of say an honest company or something like that.
2: Yeah, it's um it starts again with third party validation when you're early on it's getting people that already have trust to speak on your behalf. Again, that can be your small base of customers. If they're willing to talk about you, people trust other people. And so that's you know, you talk about the sort of early the adopter curves of like early adopters in uh buying products. You'll get some people that will buy it just because they're always love new products and they want to try something new. But most people buy because someone else told them about the product. Word of mouth is still the biggest driver of business. We always will be. It's human nature. And so that is, you know, where you start. That being said, word of mouth is slow, takes a long time for people to tell other people. So how do you juice that? That's why influencer marketing has been so great, uh, big. Why PR is always something looked at. like Where can I get more awareness, but from a third party that already has some trust that is basically lending me their trust? you get a big article in TechCrunch about how great your piece of technology is. That inherently will get you customer because they believe that TechCrunch has something to lose by promoting you and they trust TechCrunch. So you'll get the people that trust, trust TechCrunch and basically borrow their trust.
0: That makes sense. So how can small brands get that chatter out there? How can they connect with that journalist at TechCrunch or something like that? When, you know, even getting in that door can be a bit of a hurdle. If it's kind of a catch twenty two of you don't really get those opportunities until so you have the recognition. But you don't get the recognition until so you have those opportunities. What are some ways that smaller businesses who maybe don't have a huge PR team can get some of that for themselves?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's as a founder, you got to figure it out. Honestly, it's uh, you know, everything's hard. Building a business is hard. There's nothing easy. TechCrunch might not have an open door policy, but you might have some other access, or so you got to go create it. it it really is like originally I got a bunch of press because I was taught that, you know, write the headline for the journalist, like make it easy on them. And just like, what do they like to write about? Show them why you'd be interesting to their audience and make it easy on them. Um, I think a lot of people run with the fallacy that their company is the most interesting thing in the world. And nine times out of ten, it's not. And so you have to figure out how you can make it easy for that journalist to not have to think too hard as to how to make you interesting. If you tee it up for them, they're probably going to write about you. Um, but again, you have to be real with yourself on what is actually interesting to the audience. That's number one. And most of these people are on Twitter or you have access in some way that you can get to them. You just have to stand out. And that's if that that PR strategy, uh, it's just one strategy. That's the other thing is like, you don't have to do all of these things. If you have a great product, again, that word of mouth piece, you can be just a great product person and word of mouth, you know, will get you to a certain point before you can afford to hire people that are skilled at this. So that's another piece. um, having making friends or having friends that have a lot of influence or have a big following also can help. So you get, you know, some major person in your industry also reaching out and, you know, appealing to a certain side of them and being like, I would love to send you some product or work with you and figuring out a deal individually. Like there's a hundred different ways to do this. The idea is looking for a place you can borrow trust.
0: Now we got a little bit ahead of ourselves here because before that comes something that you mentioned briefly in there, which was the idea of standing out of actually being interesting. Now, uh, we've all heard the saying, there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, truly, whatever your brand is doing, someone else has probably done something like it before. So what are some ways that that brands can kind of get to work on figuring out what that point of interest will even be? Because, you know, as well as I do, sometimes we're too close to something to see it or we're too dedicated to the story in our heads as the person who's putting it out there to really see what the story would be in the in the market's heads. So how do you recommend brands go about even figuring out that point of difference?
2: I would go out and be hit the road. Like the best way that I've figured out how to position things is I figure out something I think is a good positioning and I go to a trade show, conference, meet up, whatever, and I start talking about it and I see if people are interested. You have to have a little bit of EQ and watch how people respond and react. Again, if you're a founder, you have to be good at this. Like That's just part of it. And you have to go, here's my idea. What do you, you know, and tell people about it, see if they light up and are interested or if they go, okay, cool. And they're off. If you don't have, if they're, whatever your pitch is doesn't cause people to lean forward and ask more questions, change your pitch. And you look for like where you find that, that it's like almost a light bulb to the people you're explaining it to. And you need to just, you know, sort of try, keep trying until you hit that and keep talking about it go to a lot of places. You, and honestly, you need to be networking anyways, if you're a business owner. So getting out there and talking about it's super important.
0: Now you've worked with a lot of different types of brands. For you, what do you think is really interesting about a brand and brands that you've worked with? You know, what what sort of common factors tend to make you stand up and take notice and be excited to work with them to help build as opposed to being just kind of another client?
2: Um, so you're saying what makes me excited to work with our clients? Yeah, you know, it's this is where it's fun because I it's not about the product, which has always been a great differentiator for us is like, I don't I just like growing things like I was actually before I was starting Hawk. I was trying to start a tea company and I don't even drink tea. I just thought there was a value to it and I saw growth in the industry. So for me, it's not necessarily because, you know, and yeah, it's fun if I get to work like I work. We we did Diamondback. uh diamondback bicycles marketing forever. And I got a mountain bike from them and used to mountain bike a ton. And like, so that's fun when you get to work with companies that you're also using on a personal level, snowboard brands, I'm a big snowboard or things like that. But generally, it's just I love growing businesses. And I love seeing like that we can take someone's little passion and pro, um and product and then put a megaphone on it and turn it into something really big. And that doesn't really have much of a limitation or barrier the only time i don't have fun working with companies is when frankly the founder is not a nice person we have a rule around that but as long as we're working collaboratively and we're working with someone that's really great to work with and we can bring our expertise to sort of again put a megaphone on a company and put it on a rocket ship that's that it's a blast no matter what it is
0: rocket blast (laughs) So, again, you have worked with different types of companies that I'm sure have been in different stages of growth and development. What are some common factors that you've seen that make a company especially, I don't want to say easy to grow. That's not really the right word I'm going for, um, especially primed for growth, I suppose, especially growable. What are some key factors there that you have noted?
2: By far, a a great needed product, like something that people want or need that is then they did a great job executing it like it it, and i hate to be such a simple answer but if it's a great product it is really easy to do marketing if it's a terrible product it is almost impossible to do marketing because what happens is and i'm talking this from a financial standpoint if you don't have a great product you're not going to get word of mouth you're not going to get referrals you're not going to get uh you know an increase in the business once you acquire a customer which means you have to buy every customer which is completely cost prohibitive because you're competing with other companies are willing to spend the same amount of money on a customer because they know they're going to get a bunch more. And so when you have a bad product, no matter how good we are at selling that initial product because let's say we do the best messaging or best video or whatever and so those early adopters buy, they don't tell anyone else about it and it goes nowhere. Vice versa, we could you know do the most horrible advertisement, but that one person now and then decides to convert, but it's a great product so they tell everyone. That can work. So like
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: Now, there are some brands, of course, that start out and they've got, you know, kind of some sense of strong branding from the get go. And they're able to sort of do that themselves on some level. And that might last for a while. They They might be able to grow and keep it internal. Then there are some brands where from the get-go, from the very start, before they have a product, while they're still conceiving it, they bring in an agency, they do their branding so that they kind of have that set and ready to roll. What do you feel um, is sort of an indicator that a brand is ready to bring in an agency to help grow them? And I'm sure it varies wildly, but what do you think is a, a good indicator then it's time for a brand to bring in an outside agency and and about what point do you think is a good time to bring in a growth agency.
2: I generally recommend to get some traction on your own. I think a lot of people will hire a marketer or an agency right away and take that off their plate. And I think as the founder of a company, if you can't get to the point that you can afford to spend 10 to 20 grand a month on marketing, uh, you shouldn't be hiring anyone. So in that very, very beginning, early stages, you need to be the one driving revenue so that you can learn why people like your product, where it's being received well where it's not what's wrong with the pitch and really hone in on like how to position your company and how to sell it and get some customers going so you know also who your customer is and you should do all of that before hiring anyone agency or in-house um and not try to take you know defer the responsibility to someone else that's where we see sometimes listen that can go well because if it's a great product we can jump in and just off out the gate do it but a lot of times it also doesn't go well because they pull us in they had no idea if people would even like their product. We put up some ads and nothing happens because nobody cares. And that's hard to predict. I don't we also don't like to be a gatekeeper and like try to like, you know, look at a product and go, oh, no one's gonna buy this. Like, we don't know. We've had so many surprises over time that like go get the data is really important. I think it's important for a founder to do that first. Once you get to that traction, you can afford to spend, again, kind of a minimum 10 grand a month on marketing all in, then it's maybe time to hire an agency or bring someone in and start to build from there. Uh, I recommend. A good, you know, reputable agency because my view is like people, I hate to say it, but people would rather work for my company than probably 90% of companies out there. I pay well. We have all the support, all the infrastructure, all the benefits, everything. Like you competing with me to try to hire an internal marketing person is going to be tough. On top of that, so you're, so good luck getting a great, you know, uh, A plus talent. On top of that, all our infrastructure, like this is where we really do. You know the idea of our mission of accessibility to great marketing, bringing sort of Fortune 500 marketing to the masses. We spend so much money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on these different platforms. We have full time teams at Google, Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, Pinterest, etc. We have so much experience. We have our own AI platform where we can see which metrics are off based on 8,000 companies' benchmarks that we can actually tell you it's your conversion rates that's the problem, or it's your site speed, or it's this or that. So we have all these diagnostics tools and. To hire us is the same price as to or not, more cost effective than trying to build it yourself. So I think generally you want to look for a good partner like us um, and you want to do it at a stage where you've already proven that people want the product and now it's time to like juice it. That's probably the best phase.
0: Now, as you, you've you gotten into this a little bit, I want to dig into it a little bit more. You mentioned one of the differences that working with an agency like yours, you know, bringing the Fortune 500 marketing to the masses. One of those differences appears to be access to data and knowledge of what the heck to do with it yes. and the ability exactly. and the fact that you are doing that at scale, which is better than uh, reinvent- reinventing the wheel. But what mm-hmm. are some other factors that go into that, you know, marketing like a big company? Uh, what are some other elements that really are advantages that those big companies have when it comes to branding and when it comes to brand building that the little guys maybe don't as much?
2: Yeah, again, uh, number one, you just n- nailed a couple of them. One is access. They can actually, we can make a phone call and talk to Facebook and get insights on how to use their platform, what we should do about campaign, what's coming down the pike, all those kind of things. Number two is uh the uh, access to data. You know, like we, again, it's hard as a small business to actually know what's going on in the ecosystem. One of the most common lines I hear is, well, my friend says they're doing this, like one data point, one other company, and that's where people are getting a lot of their insight. And that's common and it's not prudent and it doesn't help the company. And so those two things are really big is the access to the platforms and partnerships, the access to data. So you actually know what good performance is. This happens all the time where we have a client that says, well, my friend says they're getting 20 times their money on their Facebook marketing. And it's like, your friend should be a billionaire if that's the case. Like, Do they not have better than 5% gross margins? Because if they're making that much money, why haven't they spent a billion dollars? Like, It doesn't make any sense um and the, the truth is when you get into the nuance it is bs they're not their friend isn't making that they're just trying to brag about something or their agency has pulled the veil over them and so showing what real performance should look like and understanding what success is is a big problem for small businesses they don't even know that they're doing well sometimes they don't even understand like we, we had a client that uh Facebook even, like Facebook's reporting is broken. It's been broken since iOS change. And that's actually the biggest problem with Facebook. Everyone's heard about this iOS change hurting Facebook. It really just hurt their reporting more than anything. And so we had someone that Facebook's telling them they're making a one-times return on their advertising. So they're spending hundred grand a month. They're making 100000 grand a month. Well, when we went into their first-party data and their actual data and then used our data tool to actually look at it, those customers in the first week, which is all Facebook reports against, Yes, they were spending 100 grand after spent and they're spending 100 grand to make 100 grand. But those customers over the course of 3 months were spending 1.5 million. million. So, they were spending 100 grand to actually make 1.5 million dollars after 3 months and they were ready to cut that off. And so we saw this a lot with a lot of uh a lot of e-commerce companies last year. The average Shopify site up until Q3 of last year declined 20% year over year because a ton of them read the data wrong, pulled off Facebook and then there goes all the revenue and they can't even figure out why because facebook told them it was failing so they thought they were doing the right thing
0: ah i love that you're talking you're digging into social media here because while of course there are so many other things to building a brand and building a business social media is kind of my jam and my favorite thing but of course things are always changing things are always shifting to your point the you know the benchmarks keep changing you can't always trust the data what do you feel Having been doing this for a little while and having seen this from all sorts of different angles, what do you feel are some of the best ways that a brand can get ROI, serious ROI, on social media nowadays?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest fallacy and the part that people miss is that it's social media is a top of the funnel thing. Like it's about driving in traffic. So, like a lot of people, like if your conversion, like your ROI isn't going well on Facebook. A lot of people think it's their ads or their targeting and they keep trying to fix that. And it's probably a lot, nine times, not nine times out of 10, but a a majority of the time, it's actually a problem with their product. It's a problem with their uh, website. It's a problem with their uh, nurturing, meaning their email marketing, their SMS. They're not doing all the other things they need to do to complement what they're doing on Facebook. That's generally what we see is they're just spending money on Facebook, basically chucking people onto a website, doing nothing to follow up and hoping that they just buy something on their own. And that, you know, it's about having a, all-encompassing strategy that's how you succeed in, in uh, marketing in general. And I think it's important to know all these things are built in a competitive set. Like Facebook is based on a bidding system, based on what someone's willing to pay for those that audience. And so if you're not doing all these things, but a competitor is, and when I say competitor, I don't mean someone with the same product. I mean, someone targeting the same audience. If you're targeting men 18 to 34. Good luck if you're not doing everything right, because someone else will do things right and will merchandise well and has a product people want, and they're willing to pay more for those impressions on Facebook because they know they're going to come in and convert at a higher rate. So you have to do all these things in conjunction to actually succeed. And I think that's where the shift has happened the past couple of years that has really thrown people off. It became more competitive online. You actually have to be a good marketer now and run all these processes. And there was a period where people could just spend money on Facebook and make money because there wasn't a lot of competition. That day's over.
0: Man. Now, it's clear from a lot of our conversation that one of the big differences, one of the big advantages that large brands tend to have or brands of any size that work with you tend to have is knowledge and data and how to interconnect that data and that information. Is there anything in your estimation that larger brands perhaps could take a step back and learn from smaller brands about, yep. about growth and about branding in general?
2: Yeah, I see a ton of larger brands not run best practices on this stuff. So like I I just spoke with a multi-billion dollar company that doesn't have an email strategy. Like it's like, you know, they've a lot of these digital tools have really come to fruition the past few years. Like SMS marketing wasn't a big thing till four years ago. It's and it's grown massively the past four years. But these companies are so slow to move. They're just leaving money on the table because they're not building these out. And so that that's been a big one is I actually see that like for them to like adopt the new trends and the new software is like, you don't want to get over the top and every shiny object jump into. And it's ironic because I know a lot of companies that still haven't implemented SMS marketing, but jumped full bore into NFTs, which made almost no brands, any money, a few, but not many. And so they, they don't really hesitate on the hype train, but when pragmatic tools come out that are really powerful, I see a lot of bigger brands struggle because There's also sort of a cultural problem with a lot of bigger brands where the CMO or the head of marketing is trying to do things that they can promote to the board and to their CEO and look like heroes because they're innovative. And sometimes it's the unsexy tools that are super lucrative that make all the difference and they're not as exciting on the upfront to a lot of these companies.
0: Yeah, the shiny object syndrome is incredible. I love that you called out the NFT craze. All right. Yeah. So um, I'm going to take this home with asking you for your top three brand building tips, brands of any size. What are three things that you feel can be really simple, just kind of universally applied that are really important elements of building a brand?
2: Number one, think of your brand as a person. So personality, what would they say? How would they say it? Who are they? And the way you develop that person, My, the most important thing, I think, in developing a brand is what is someone aspiring to be when they buy your product or service um every there's an aspiration doesn't need to be grandiose like people could be buying socks because they don't want to have socks with holes in them like they buy running shoes because they want to be healthier they buy uh an iphone because they want to have more access and information at their fingertips whatever it is like figure out that aspiration and then make sure your brand is the person they're aspiring to be so Figure out what on an emotional level that is and the way you speak, the way you talk, like what are they looking for? What is the emotional appeal of your company and be that emotional appeal? And so I think that's super important. I de- create that character that they wish they were. Is what if you're again running shoe company, be talk about health and happiness and you know, whatever it is that you think that is the reason people what are people trying to achieve by buying your product? So that's number one um, is you know, again, figure out. Figure out what the aspiration is, I guess, is number one. Number two is create a persona that is that aspiration. And number three, repeat that aspiration over and over and over and over and over again forever. So, Because the more you talk about what you're trying to be and who you are, the more people will believe it. Zappos is a great example of that. All they did was talk about customer service. And then internally, that becomes a thing. Externally, that becomes a thing. They wrote a book on it. And now what ends up happening is if you have a good experience with, Zappos, you're like, yeah, of course, it's Zappos. They're great at customer service because they've told you that. If you have a bad experience with Zappos, you will generally go, well, it must be an anomaly because they're supposed to be the best at customer service. So you give them the benefit of the doubt because it's been repeated so many times. And there's sort of a, a, a positive and negative way to use that. But at the same time, like I think that is a very powerful PR tool.
0: I love that. First of all, I love Zappos. <laughs> you use that as, as an example because they send me things I feel like they must send them like when they know in advance that I'm going to buy them. And also I really love that you pointed out the importance of personal. My main jam is personal branding, not so much consumer brands. And I love that you pointed out that ultimately consumer brands are playing to the personal on the other side. So important. This has been fantastic, Eric tell folks at home where they can find you, why they should find you and what they will find there.
2: Sure. Uh, Well, you can find me on any social platform at our slash Eric Huberman. So that's easy. Um, And then if you want a free audit to run a, you know, diagnostics through our AI platform, et cetera, we really try to be accessible. So hawkmedia.com, feel free to reach out um, or on social. I'm pretty accessible by nature. Our mission is accessibility to great marketing.
0: Nice. Well, thank you so much for being here, Eric. This was fantastic. Loved talking about brand with you.
2: You as well. Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you for being here as well. Yes, you, whether you are listening to Let's Talk About Brand on your podcast player of choice via the Adweek Podcast Network, or if you're joining us for the video podcast here on YouTube at Christine Gritman Inc. Either way, I hope that you tune in and you you subscribe so that you don't miss a single podcast drop on Mondays, video podcast drop on Fridays, and then, of course, in between, we've got Chat About Brand on Twitter. Please do join me next week. I will be back talking to another smart guest expert about a different element of branding. Bye. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk About Brand, part of the Adweek Podcast Network and Acast Creator Network. This podcast was produced by Christine Gritman, executive produced by Al Manorino and John Heil, and edited by Christine Gritman. You can listen and subscribe to all of Adweek's podcasts by visiting adweek.com slash podcasts. Stay updated on all things Adweek Podcast Network by following us on Twitter at Adweek Podcast. And if you have a question or suggestion for the show, send us an email at podcast at adweek.com.